as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us go to gigantic.is that's gigantic.is and save your seat for our january cohort your potential is gigantic and we're here to help you reach it go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today all right so let's get meta in this episode which i believe will be the last episode of season nine and we're going to talk about the history of this very format, podcasts. All right. I mean, when I think of podcasts, I don't think of necessarily any particular company, though. Yeah, and that's exactly it. A lot of companies have contributed to the advancement of the medium, but no company can really claim ownership of the product itself. It's a weaving history that is largely driven by individuals who just loved audio storytelling. And we're trying to figure out how to build a business of that passion, uh, much like us, honestly. Well, from the early days of internet radio through the heyday of audio storytelling, we're going to take you on a trip through the history of podcasts today on Rocketship FM. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. 
Racket Chip FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So podcasting is one of those interesting products whose innovation until recently was largely driven by the community of podcasters and podcast fans without a single company necessarily behind it. And I guess one could say that Apple Podcasts sort of filled that gap for a long time, right? Yes and no, right? We'll get to that soon. But to understand how this product and medium has evolved, we actually have to go back to 1974. 1974, really? That's right. We'll cover some of the engineering innovation first that kind of led to us being able to do what we do today. So in 1974, Steve Kashner produced an early spec for network voice protocol and packet voice was being used for early conferencing apps even as IP emerged. ARPANET, the first worldwide packet switching network with distributed control, was turned off in April of 1984, marking the formal birth of what we know as the internet. Since MVP was in circulation at that point. It means the first stream on the internet would have been in April of 1984. I actually had no idea that it went back that far. So what was the use case? I, I can imagine it wasn't uh, recounting true crime stories uh, for the rabid fan bases, right? No, it was almost exclusively for academic conferences, right? Universities sharing research and various information back and forth. And this remained until 1993, where we see the first actual internet radio. Now, wait a second. If we're going to go back that far, it's probably worth pointing out that recorded audio production it actually dates back to the late 1860s, where the phonoautograph was invented by Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville and captured the earliest known recording of a person singing. Right, right. But we, we only have 20 minutes, <laughs> so we're going to skip the full history of audio and the obvious influence that early radio had on the medium. But, you know, maybe we'll weave some of that influence in later in the evolution of podcasting as a creative medium. But now back to 1993, where we see the first instances of what is called internet radio. Yeah, internet radio very slightly from podcasts in that much like terrestrial radio, it was broadcast live and intended to be listened to in real time. However, these files were recorded and pushed to an FTP server, so they could also be archived and accessed at any time. In 1993, Carl Malmud decided to launch a formal program in the early multicast IP network that ran across many academic and some industry internet sites called Mbone or Multicast Backbone. Mbone was an experimental backbone and virtual network built on top of the internet for carrying IP multicast traffic on the internet. It was developed in the early 1990s and required specialized hardware and software. Now, it's since been replaced with much better conferencing software, and its last known use was in 2008. But in 1993, this was the cutting-edge technology that allowed Carl Malamud to broadcast his early interviews. His channel was called Internet Talk Radio, and the program was called Geek of the Week, he gathered a number of technically interested parties who were essentially his peer academics and started in March 1993 where he would program interviews with them. Now, what's incredible is that many of the folks interviewed are now infamous in the internet engineering community. These are the forefathers of the modern internet, talking about evolving protocols that they probably, at the time anyway, had very little idea that they were going to become so successful in terms of the soon-to-explode internet. Here's a clip of Carl's show from 1993. <laughs> 
Internet Talk Radio. The medium is the message. Geek of the Week, and we're here with Dan Lynch, who is president and founder of Interop Company, and he's also a longtime member of the Internet Architecture Board. Uh, welcome to Geek of the Week, Dan. Oh, thanks very much, Carl. Glad to be here. Um, you've been a member of the IAB for a, a long time, and you've been officially the industry rep. How does your role differ from, from the IAB, other IAB members? Well, the industry rep's kind of funny, since I actually... Um, you know, have never really been, you know, a manufacturer of goods and services. Uh, I, Complete with I, intro music. Now, I guess not too much <laughs> has changed, right? Absolutely not. Now, Malamud had a distinct advantage in that he was in D.C. He was working for the United States government. And for distribution to the net, he had a whole 10 millibytes per second line, which was the fastest line in D.C. at the time. And he was the only end user on it. Today, many base-level internet plans start at 300 Mbps or 2,900 percent faster. In 1993, the average speed was just 2.7 Mbps. Then, in 1994, M-Bone technology went mainstream when the Rolling Stones broadcast a live concert for the first time ever live on the internet. At the concert, Mick Jagger even acknowledges the crowd, saying, I want to say a special welcome to everyone that's uh, climbed into the internet tonight and uh, has gotten the M-Bone, and I hope it doesn't all collapse. Here's actual footage of the event from 1994. Plus old will be new again later this week when the Rolling Stones break new ground with the first ever live rock concert on the global computer internet. Five songs from the Stones' November 18th concert in Dallas will be beamed worldwide on the information superhighway. A New York-based company called Thinking Pictures arranged the show. A spokesman for the firm says transmission quality will be inferior to normal broadcasts, but that is being done to learn about the Internet's limitations. And the Stones are the Stones, so the fans will love it anyway. They won't care. And on an historic night in November, the Rolling Stones... One small step for Mick, one large leap for the internet. The Rolling Stones rocked the net with a live transmission of a concert in Dallas. I want to say a special welcome to everyone that's uh, climbed into the internet tonight. And, uh, Only a couple of hundred sites on the planet had the computer power to receive the broadcast. I would say maximum a thousand people saw it the first night. Martin Friedman of MIT's Media Lab helped design the web page or graphics that greeted internauts to the concert. That's pretty wild. Anyway, then in 1995, Virgin Radio was the first commercial radio station to go online. The funny thing was, for the first year, it streamed from engineer Gavin Stark's desktop PC. <laughs> That's a funny story, actually, right? It was a Tuesday, and Gavin had just started his first commercial job at Virgin. His new boss, 
day one, asked if he could, amongst you know five other things that he needed to do, set up Virgin Radio to stream online by Friday. So just four days. By Friday, Gavin had the server running on his desktop and the encoder set up on another desktop machine, which sat next to him. He asked if there was a budget for equipment and they asked what was the minimum that he needed. And he said, just a radio. And so he went down to the store, bought a 30-pound radio, as he's in London, and then tuned it to Virgin Radio. He plugged the headphone jack into his desktop PC and then streamed it out onto the web. Now, no story about internet radio would be complete without a mention of Real Networks and its audio format, Real Audio. Now, Real Networks, or just Real for short, it emerged during the mid-1990s as the web was becoming more consumer-focused, and it was the primary enabler for the general public to engage with early streaming. For consumer adoption, Real was the key breakthrough technology, and for a very simple reason. It had a simple and reliable interface, and you could play with it for free. Now, the emergence of the iPod and the term podcasting after a quick break. Before the break, we explored the early history of internet audio, mainly focused on internet radio, which was a clear precursor to podcasting. Now let's jump ahead, uh, oh, a half decade to 2001 and the introduction of the iPod. Here's Steve Jobs speaking at the 2001 iPod launch event. It's beautiful, and this is what the front of it looks like. Boom, that's iPod. I happen to have one right here in my pocket, matter of fact. There it is, right there. So, this amazing little device holds a thousand songs, and it goes right in my pocket. The iPod paved the way for former MTV VJ Adam Curry and software developer Dave Weiner in 2004 to devise a plan that would enable them to download online radio broadcasts from the internet directly to this exciting new device. Now, Wiener had authored an RSS, Really Simple Syndication, aggregator software, and Curry coded a program titled iPodder, which could extract audio files from an RSS feed so that they could be transferred to an iPod. Now, for once, radio broadcast files could be stored on a portable player and listened to on the go. And I bet people thought we were going to cover just cereal in this episode, right? (laughs) I mean, we probably should at some point, right? Yeah, yeah, no, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But in February of 2004, journalist Ben Hammersley published a now iconic article about the dawning torrent of online radio that Curry and Wiener had partly helped bring to life. Citing the rise of the iPod, the increased affordability of the home audio production software, and the proven appetite for blogging that had already come to dominate the web. Hammersley observed that all the ingredients are there for a new boom in amateur radio and proceeded to propose a handful of prospective titles for this fresh wave of online broadcasting. Audio blogging, podcasting, guerrilla media. Podcasting, kind of throwaway compound of iPod and broadcast, was ultimately the one that stuck. All right, I feel like we need some sort of marker for this moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see what I've got. All right, how about this? Okay, that'll work. (laughs) So the term podcasting was coined in February of 2004. And by 2004, the first podcast service provider, Libsyn.com, had emerged. Before the end of that year, the number of Google hits for the term podcasts, it eclipsed 100,000. 
Hammersley's coinage was here to stay. As 2005 rolled around, the hoopla surrounding podcasts was beginning to gain traction. It was the year the new Oxford American Dictionary named podcast the word of the year, cementing the status of podcasts as an emergent media. Now, this is where it starts to get fun. You weren't having fun? Well, now that the engineering <laughs> infrastructure is fully in place, now we've arrived at the business of podcasting. In 2005, Yahoo unveiled a podcast search, and the medium's first six-figure deal took place. MommyCast, a podcast hosted by two Northern Virginia moms discussing topics like health and nutrition, they signed with tableware brand Dixie Consumer Products. While the podcast is now offline, I actually found an archive of the intro song. Now, I'm not exactly sure what year this episode's from, but I found it interesting to include, nevertheless. Pretty mama eat your world today, such a strange and amusing place. One day you buy a rocket ship under pants, and then the next they're in outer space. Mama, don't you know you keep the whole world turning round? One of the most notable developments that 2005 saw was Apple introducing podcasts into iTunes 4.9 and building a directory of podcasts on the iTunes Music Store. For the next decade and beyond, podcasts would largely be associated with Apple, especially because iTunes and the podcast app released in 2012 were the main destinations where most listeners could find, download, and subscribe to podcasts. And even Steve Jobs was getting into podcasting. Hi, I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors. <laughs> Featuring the hot... I got this all timed out. You gotta let me do this here. <laughs> I'm going to try this again. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors, featuring the hottest rumors about our favorite company. I have some pretty good sources inside Apple, and this is what I'm hearing. The next iPod will be huge, an eight-pounder with a 10-inch screen. <laughs> also, Apple's working with other companies to get iPods everywhere. Well, that's all for today. See you next week. Okay, well, maybe not quite, but that was Steve Jobs demoing how to use GarageBand to make a podcast in front of a live audience in 2006. In October of 2006, This American Life launched a podcast version of their popular radio show, which to this day continues to be one of the most downloaded shows on the podcast charts. Okay, this happens to be Chicago, but every city has a place like this. That weird, desolate area at the far end of town. We're a half mile west of the old abandoned steel mills. We're a half mile north of landfills where methane fires used to burn. Coming after the break, podcasting explodes into the mainstream. That and more after this quick break. Before the break, we reached the beginning of podcasting as we know it today. From 2006 until 2014, podcasting grew slowly. As we approached 2014, podcasts had reached something of a plateau. It carved out a niche and had bred its own celebrities and conventions. And all of this largely unsupported from the larger tech ecosystem. There were a few companies like Libsyn and Midroll who had a business interest in the space and Apple 
kind of supported podcast, but had virtually no innovation behind the, the platform from 2006 until 2014. Discovery still happened largely on social media or through like newsletters. And people were making money through advertising, but it was still largely seen as a niche. And people weren't sure if audio was going to have the resurgence that podcast fanatics had been hoping to see. But then... This is a global tail link prepaid call from Adnan Sayed, an inmate at a Maryland correctional facility. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial, one story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. still brings back some memories. Yeah, Serial launches, and it's a cultural phenomenon. I don't even think its creators expected it, honestly, but Serial is an investigative journalism podcast hosted by Sarah Koenig, narrating a nonfiction story over multiple episodes. The series was co-created and co-produced by Koenig and Julia Snyder and developed by This American Life. Yeah, season one investigated the 1999 murder of Ha Min Lee, an 18-year-old student at Woodlawn High School in Baltimore, and her ex-boyfriend, Anad Syed, who was convicted of her murder, though has maintained his innocence. The podcast follows Sarah Koenig through a season-long investigation with countless interviews from Anand from jail as he tells his side of the story, and Koenig then travels around debating evidence and following up on various leads. And we can't forget the most famous podcast ad ever recorded, Mail Kemp. <laughs> Support for cereal comes from MailChimp. From MailChimp. Mail. Came. Chimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use a MailChimp to send emails, newsletters, and deliver high fives. MailChimp. Send better email. Very nice. I use MailChimp. You do. And that mispronunciation alone became a cultural phenomenon. Living in millions of people's heads, seemingly rent free for the fall of 2014. Support for cereal comes from MailChimp. From MailChimp. Mail. Came. Mail. Came. Mail. Came. Mail. Came. Mail. Came. Mail. More than 7 million businesses around the world. Cereal was so successful that it received its own SNL skit where Cecily Strong plays Sarah Koenig. you to think about things you can't see. The rotation of the planets, electricity, gravity. Because we only see the results and not the process, should we come to the conclusion that it doesn't exist? I'm Sarah Koenig. On December 25th, 1999, a small boy awoke in Baltimore, Maryland. He went down to his living room and found a Nerf N-Strike Mega Magnus Blaster. It's a mouthful, I know. That's the toy he wanted. The toy had no tag, no receipt. It was as if it appeared out of thin air. The boy maintained the toy had been brought by magic, by a mysterious man named Chris. 
but I had to ask myself, could Chris really have done this? And if so, how? In its first year, Apple announced that Serial was the fastest podcast to reach 5 million downloads and streams in iTunes history. The latest numbers we could find, uh, they were a couple years old, but it stated that the podcast had been downloaded over 175 million times. Podcasting has officially arrived, and with the help of another This American Life spinoff, Startup, the first high-profile podcast production startup had arrived. I'm Alex Bloomberg, and for a long time I was a producer at the public radio show This American Life. And also the co-creator of a podcast called Planet Money, where for years I reported on business and the economy. It was a great gig until I decided to do something rash. I decided to take what I learned from reporting on other people's businesses and start my own business. Are you meeting someone with money? <laughs> this is my wife, Nazanin, early one morning a couple months ago, stopping me as I was on my way out the door to do something I'd never done before. Meet a guy who works at a venture capital firm and try to get him to give me money to invest in my business, a podcast business. I love podcasts. I love making them. I love listening to them. But there's all kinds of podcasts out there, from a couple people talking around a mic to the kind that I make and that I have a particular soft spot for, which focus on storytelling and journalism. Those podcasts, they take way more money and resources and time than the other ones. And probably because of this, there aren't that many of them. To me, it seems like there aren't enough of them. Seem like someone should come up with money to invest in making new shows like these and come up with a theory about how those shows could be profitable. I kept waiting for someone to do that. And then came this thought, a thought that's gotten a lot of people into a lot of trouble. The thought, well, I could do that. Startup follows Alex Bloomberg as he builds Gimlet Media, which would go on to be acquired by Spotify. Yeah, actually, we've covered Gimlet Media in one of our product journeys uh, last season. But that show, it also featured a piece of podcast history. When Alex Bloomberg pitches Chris Saka, his company for the very first time. I made my pitch to Chris Saka. Well, I have a deck, which, I'm like, which yeah, I've used yeah, for people. Yeah, it, but it, it, it was a crutch. I got used to it. All right, so what's my, yeah. So, yeah. Pretty much immediately, all the confidence that I felt during the lunch evaporates. Remember the structure, Bloomberg, I tell myself. Problem, solution, money. Here's the problem. In the world of audio right now, most people consume the, the kind of audio journalism that I do. Most, of, most people consume it over the radio. Those people are leaving the radio in droves, and they're migrating to digital. They're migrating to digital listening. The number of, obviously, smartphone handsets are going through the roof. The audio dashboard is becoming digital. iTunes radio, podcasting is all going to be on your dashboard. Um, and there's this whole world of, so there's all these people going there. And I want to start a company that will create the content for all these people to listen to who are like moving into the digital future slash present. Digital future slash present? Who says that? If I'm honest, I sound like a douchebag. Alex, he goes on to raise money from Chris Saka, and Gimlet goes on to be acquired by Spotify for around $200 million. Yeah, and this is a major milestone for the podcast industry. I mean, all of a sudden, there's a major player in audio besides Apple that's investing in podcasting. 
Here's Daniel Eck on the acquisition of Gimlet Media by Spotify. Spotify's co-founder and CEO, Daniel Eck, right here at Post 9. Daniel, I've got to ask you right, right up front, podcasts. I understand they are red hot, and what we want is an aggregator. Uh, I didn't think that a music company would do it, but I do think that an audio company would do it. And that's what this is about, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really about uh, expanding our mission from just being about music to being about uh, all of audio and being the world's leading audio platform. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, really is we've done podcasts now for about two years, and it's uh, our users who are listening to podcasts are listening to the platform almost twice as much. Um, and, uh, of course, the growth in podcasts for us has just been phenomenal, and that's part of the reason why we're now making this move. So podcasts are now a strategic advantage for Spotify. You think of how far we've come. Right? Since then, Spotify also bought the Joe Rogan show for over $100 million. Think about that. That's for one single show, one podcast. I know. It's wild. And podcasts have also seen another pathway to success in selling their story rights to film production houses like Gimlet did with their narrative podcast, Homecoming. What happened to the fish? Uh, I got rid of them. Just figured it was for the best. I couldn't get into it. You were employed at the Homecoming Transitional Support Center. How do you feel? Happy. What we're seeking here is information. What were your duties there? I don't know. You don't know? I know why I'm here. I want to be in compliance with all this. Compliance? Have you ever forgotten something? Something big? You think this is the place where they want to help us out? We're here to help them. I want to be in compliance with our What do you mean? Helping us in future? We're here to help them. We can leave whenever we want. How do you know I want to be in compliance with This is about your future. That was a part of the trailer for the Amazon version of Homecoming, which was originally, again, a podcast that was released by Gimlet Media, starring Katherine Keener, Oscar Isaac, and David Schwimmer. Now, this production was groundbreaking in opening up new avenues of monetization for audio content. Since then, actually, Startup became a shortly and, and soon to be canceled sitcom. But we also saw the adaptations of the popular podcast Lore and more recently Song Exposure has found its new home on Netflix. Now, today, we see a more vibrant podcast industry than ever before. Platforms like Megaphone and Simplecast, large dynamic radio ad platforms like Triton focusing on more of their efforts on podcasting, and with the acquisition of Omni, which is still my favorite hosting platform, and incredible media companies such as Wondery, Pineapple Street Media, the Podglomerate, our network, and of course, Gimlet Media. And the multitude of podcast players in the market now, from Castor to CastBox and of course Spotify, there are major challengers to the Apple Podcast app, which is bringing in new and exciting innovation to the space. I'm incredibly excited to see where this goes in the next 10 years. Yeah, it feels like we're just getting started. So, Mike, this was our final episode of season nine. 
which is all about product journeys. And next season is all about workplace confessionals. So next week, we're going to kick off with our first episode featuring Ben Foster. Yeah, I can't wait. This is a good one. We're getting a lot of confessions already um, from you, the listeners. In fact, if you want to send in some confessions of your own, you can do that. You could email us at team at rocketship.fm. There's still time to do that. Uh, but I think you're going to have a lot of fun this season. Thank you so much for listening to rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, it helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.